Our culture is changing more rapidly now than perhaps any other time in history, which means it's more challenging now to be committed, truly committed to anything than it ever has been before. But surely the most important thing to which we can give our lives is the worship of Almighty God. The truth is, when our worship is right, when it's good, when it's scriptural, when it's God-honoring, every other worthy pursuit in our lives falls naturally into its rightful place. Worship is commanded of God in scripture. Psalm 75, 1 says, we praise you, God. We praise you for your name is near. We tell of all your wonderful deeds. Are you committed to worshiping God? Well, thank you, Aaron, for that admonition this morning. Well, good morning, church. <clears throat> it's good to see you. It's good to worship with you this morning. We've had a great day in worship, Bible study, fellowship already today here on this campus. And um, our 830 worship service was a powerful time, and as this one as well, and I'm grateful to be a part of it. I want to say a word of thanks to you for your prayers and your love for us. Uh, the good news is my wife, Cindy, is home from the hospital, and we're grateful for that, and she's doing a lot better, and so thank you. I, um, when we uh, were getting ready to leave on Thursday, I asked the doctor what would, did she need to do to get better, so he, he, uh, they shared several things with us. I said, what about like cooking dinner? Don't you think that would make Cindy feel better if she were <laughs> contributing to the overall good of the home, so anyway, but uh, uh, she's watching right now, so nevertheless, um, but we're glad to be home. We're grateful for a church family that loves and supports, and it's just good to be a part of a church where we just do life together, and we share all the joys together, the challenges together, and it's a beauty, it's a beautiful thing to be a part of a church family, and we're glad to be a part of this one, so we love you. Thank you for your prayers for our family. Well, you know that our theme for the fall here at First Baptist is rededicate. And the fall of the year to me is ripe for rededication, recommitment. It's when um, we restore a lot of rhythms uh, in our lives. And it's just a, a good season of the year to give consideration to things that perhaps we might need to recommit our lives to. And so if, if that's been something that you've needed to do, I, I hope that that's been happening in your life. And uh, we'll continue this conversation throughout the fall. You know that we're studying 1 Corinthians uh, as, as the, serving really as the basis of our conversation this fall. And 1 Corinthians offers us a great opportunity to learn together how to read, to study, to interpret the Scripture. Today will be a great case in point uh, as we'll look at some of the principles that we need uh, in what we call the science of hermeneutics, which is the science of biblical interpretation. We have uh, produced a booklet for you. If you haven't gotten yours, they're available out in our, all of our welcome centers. It's entitled Rededicate, and it is a guide to assist you in learning how better to interpret and study the Word of God. Each Wednesday uh, at noon, we gather for Bible study here, in our, or for lunch, whether here in our fellowship hall, and then at 1230, I teach a Bible study and we are exploring 1 Corinthians a little more deeply than we can do on a Sunday morning. Uh, those um, Bible studies are also 
broadcast on all of our media platforms. So if you're not able to be here at 1230 on a weekday, I get that. So you can view it later. Um, you also know that we have a podcast, Tell Me More. And wherever you get your podcast, you can find that. Katie Hodges and I uh, usually spend some time talking a little bit more about the sermon. Uh, and you can follow that each week. So with that said, let's look at today's lesson. I've entitled it, Rededicate the Sacramental Life, the Holy Life, if you will. And our text is found in 1 Corinthians 10. We'll begin in verse 23. And this text is going to give us an opportunity today to, um, to flex our hermeneutical muscles. And I want to encourage you in that journey as, as a Christian to study, come to an understanding of what the text meant in its original context, and then determine how do we translate it. For example, in this text, some 2,000 years later, to our context, okay? So when you look at 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23 is where we're going to start today. We're actually reading the end of a conversation that begins in chapter 8, verse 1. So chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, Paul is basically addressing the same topic, and he brings it to a conclusion in chapter 11, verse 1, okay? So look with me at this text, and we'll try to put it in its proper context as we have this conversation this morning. So verse 23, 1 Corinthians 10. I have the right to do anything. Now that's a quotation from the Corinthians. Paul says, you say that, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything. That's a quote again. Paul says, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever's put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. Even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so they may be saved. Follow my example, as I follow the example of of Christ. So, somewhat of a complex text this morning. Let's begin just by asking this question. What in the world was going on in Corinth? That's where we start. 1 Corinthians, page 8, page 9, page 10. All about the very same thing. What in the world was going on in the first century in Corinth? Well, let me just remind you that the church in Corinth that Paul's addressing in this letter was primarily comprised of former pagans. This is not a Jewish congregation full of Jews who've converted to Christ. That's not who these people are. These people have lived their lives as pagans and now they have become Christians and they're in the church. They all still have pagan friends they all still have pagan families. 
They're all living in a very pagan culture. And so they're trying to, to figure out how to live this life amidst this potpourri of gods and goddesses in Corinth. Paul is in Ephesus, and he is concerned about the church, so he's writing them this letter. He's already written them one letter that we've lost, and now he's writing this one. Let, let, let me just read to you, uh, in our booklet, Rededicate, Kurt Grice has written somewhat of an introduction, if you will, to what was happening in Corinth. Let me read you an excerpt from Kurt's article. He says, the believers in Corinth were spiritually gifted, relationally divided, and emotionally immature. The church was made up mostly of Gentiles who loved wisdom and knowledge. They had come to Christ out of a pagan background. Based on Paul's correspondence, it appears they tended to be proud, arrogant, and dysfunctional. He says, the reason that many passages in this letter, as well as other biblical texts, are difficult for us to understand is because they weren't written specifically for us. As followers of Jesus, in our present time and place, we must be content with not knowing some things. In Scripture, God has given us all we need, though perhaps not all we want. Some questions will remain unanswered for now. So he says, when you're reading 1 Corinthians, we must avoid proof texting and confirmation bias. We must not confuse Paul's New Testament sin lists with secondary matters of indifference. We need to learn to ask this question. Is there, is there a clear principle that transcends historical particularity here? Or is this a specific application for that occasion? We must always seek to distinguish between cultural relativity and comparable reality. Well, I appreciate that word from Kurt. In other words, when we're studying 1 Corinthians or the Bible in general, We've got to, first of all, let the text say what the text says. And then we've got to try to understand, is this text just applying toward that particular situation? Or how do we translate it to our culture? So that's what I want us to do this morning, okay? Um, this, is a, this is a great opportunity for us just to do this together as a church family, all right? Because could anything be more remote than a conversation about meat offered to idols? I mean, could you find any topic more irrelevant to you this morning than meat offered to idols? When's the last time you had meat offered to you that had been offered to an idol? Probably didn't happen this past week in your life. And we've got three pages in the Bible dedicated to this topic, okay? So here's what I want you to see. Here, what's Paul's main concern? idolatry. Idolatry was at the heart of Paul's concern. You see, the Christians lived in this, in first century in Corinth, they lived in this complex web of relationships, social relationships, family relationships, and business relationships. And there was the complexity of paganism woven in all three of them. So there were Christian kids who were getting married, and they were marrying pagan kids. And so the families come together to have a wedding and you've got a pagan family and a Christian family trying to have a celebration together. You had business interests where these Christians who lived in Corinth were engaging in all kinds of business activities and they were engaging in those activities with pagans who worshiped all these pagan gods. You had all kinds of social interactions, recreational opportunities, festivals in the city, all kinds of things that were clearly tied to paganism. And here are these Christians living there in the midst of this pagan society. And the temptation was for the Christians 
was to just accommodate everything just to get along. Okay, just, just don't worry about it. It's not that big a deal. And let's just all get along with each other, okay? So I want you to notice Paul's core concern. If you still have your Bibles open, look at chapter 10, verse 14. Paul says, therefore, my dear friends, flee idolatry. Paul says, if, 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 if anything smacks of idolatry, just, just get away from it. Well, what was an example in the life of the Corinthian Christians where idolatry was just mixed in with everything? Well, believe it or not, food. Isn't that interesting? So, if you still have your Bibles open, look back at chapter 8, verse 1. Paul is responding to a letter from the Corinthian Christians. They've had a long conversation already. This is not the first time they've talked about it. They're talking about this, and here's what happens. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Paul says, now, about food sacrificed to idols. They've asked Paul about that, okay? Now, it's, it's hard for me to explain to us this morning, and it's hard for us to comprehend just how entrenched pagan practices were in the broader society in the first century. It just couldn't escape them. And so the Corinthians said to Paul, we just have a basic question for you, Paul. Why can we not eat meat that's been sacrificed at the pagan temples? Why, why can't we? What's wrong with it? Okay. Now, as I said, I can't imagine a conversation more further removed from most of us in this room than that question. I dare say not one of you got up this morning and at the breakfast table, one of your kids said, why can't we just eat the meat offered up to idols? Okay, but any of you in this room that's ever parented a teenager, you've had, you've had this conversation, why can't I go there? What's wrong with it? Well, why can't I have that? What's wrong with it? Why can't I do what they're doing? What's wrong with it? We all have had that conversation. Well, that's actually what they're saying to Paul. What's wrong with it? In other words, this is an ongoing debate. Here's what they're really asking Paul. It's, it's deeper than meat offered to idols. What, what they're really asking Paul is, at what level can we participate in this society and still be true to our Christian faith? That's really what they're after. Because see, here's what happened. The typical pagan, and I'm saying pagan, not pejoratively. I want you to hear me, okay? I mean, it's just descriptive. They were pagans in the sense they worshiped pagan gods and goddesses. Does that make sense? I'm not, I'm not being pejorative. These are people who worshiped multiple gods and goddesses. So here's what they would do. Whenever the ceremony called for it, whenever it was a particular festival, time of year, whatever it may be, the pagans would take an animal to the pagan temple. There were at least 12 of them in Corinth. So this was widespread. Everybody participated in it. You would take the animal to the priest at the pagan temple. The priest would take the animal, they would slay the animal, they would take blood from the animal, sprinkle it on the altar. Then the priest would take the animal, the carcass, and he would divide the carcass. Some of it he would give back to the pagan. Some of it he would keep for himself. And some of it he would sell to a butcher in the meat market. And so the pagan would leave the worship service, made an offering, a sacrifice, take some of the meat home to his family, the priest kept some of it, and the priest sold some of it to the butcher. So when the pagan brought meat home from the, from, from the, the sacrifice, brought the carcass animal home, guess what he did? Guess what the family did with that carcass? 
They cooked and ate it. The priest would cook and eat what he kept for the people who worked at the temple. Then the butcher would take the meat and sell it. Does that make sense? So here's what I need you to know. Meat that was offered up to a pagan god was all over Corinth. You you just couldn't avoid it. So these Christians were saying, so Paul, what's the big deal? I mean, it's everywhere. Why can't we have it? Okay. Does that make sense? So here's what we're doing. We're going back into the first century and trying to figure out what in the world is going on. Here are the three questions. These are the presenting issues. Let me give them to you. Here's the first one. Here's what these people wanted to know. They're asking Paul, could Christians attend festivals at pagan temples and eat the food sacrificed to pagan gods? That's their first question. These pagan temples all had fellowship halls, banquet halls. So they would have these big festivals. And the people would come, participate in some kind of ceremony, and then they would all gather in the fellowship hall, the banquet hall, and eat. Well, the meat that was served at the meals was meat that had been offered up to a pagan god. Here's what the Christians said to Paul. If we get invited to the festival with our pagan neighbors and we're going to go and have a big party at the banquet hall, everybody in Carth did this. This was something that was done all over the ancient world. They said, so can we go, as Christians, can we go to the banquet hall at the pagan temple and eat food with our friends? Paul says, no, you can't do that. You can't go to the banquet hall and participate. Let me show you. Look at chapter 8. If you still got your Bible, verse 10. Paul says, for if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge, Paul was poking in front of them about knowing everything, Eating in an idol's temple. In other words, eating in the fellowship hall, big festival, big party. Won't that person be emboldened to eat what's sacrificed to idols? In other words, Paul says, don't just think about yourself. Think about everybody else. And if you decide to go and just spend some time in these banquet halls, in the actual temples themselves, and participate in the serving of their food, you're actually becoming a part of idol worship. Flee idolatry. You can't do that. Second question. Could Christians eat meat sold at the Corinthian markets? That's the second question. The, the Corinthians said, look, what if, what if we just go to the grocery store and buy meat? Is that okay? Knowing full well, now not every butcher's market only served meat from the pagan temples. They bought meat from uh, farmers, folks who raised cattle. There were other places to get it. So it didn't all come from, uh, from the uh, temples, but a lot of it did. Here's the question. Could a Christian go and buy meat at a store in Corinth? Well, look at chapter 10. Look at verse 25. Paul says, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions. When you go to the store in Corinth, find meat, buy it, take it home, eat it. Paul said, don't be so persnickety and stand in line at the Kroger counter and point at the butcher and say, I know where you got this meat. Where'd you get this meat? Paul said, don't act like that. You're living in a social context, a lot of relationships, a lot of business interests, familial relationships. He said, go to the store, buy your meat, go home, cook and eat it. Does that make sense? Now, 
The next question, though, was a little more dicey. Should Christians, how should Christians respond to dinner invitations from pagans? Could they eat the meat served in the homes of pagans? That's the third question. So in other words, what happens if my pagan neighbor says, hey, we're having a meal tomorrow night. Would you come with your family and we'll serve the food? You don't have to bring anything. We'll take care of you. Now, let me remind you about Jesus. One of the things that Jesus was criticized for, do y'all remember? The, the Jewish leaders, now these were all Jews, so these weren't pagans. The Jewish leaders, the, the Pharisees, some of the religious scribes, they had a particular unique criticism of Jesus as they watched him every day and how he lived. You remember one of their criticisms? He did what now? He ate with sinners. Y'all remember that? They said, yeah, we've been watching you. These were these Jewish leaders. You eat with tax gatherers and sinners. In other words, in Judaism, there were groups of Jews who because of their work or whatever it may be, they couldn't keep all the rituals that all the Pharisees could keep. They were called sinners, okay? And then the tax gatherers were sellouts to Rome. And so what was Jesus doing? They said, Jesus, you, not only are you talking to these people, you're eating with them. There was something about eating in that culture. It was, it was a sign of affirmation, if you will. Well, that was a little different situation. However, Paul knew very well about the life of Jesus. He knew the cultural considerations. He knew what Jesus was criticized for. Now he's writing to a very different context, a group of Christians living in a pagan society, and the pagans were asking them to come over to eat. Could you go and eat? Well, I want you to notice what Paul says. Look at verse 27 of chapter 10. Are y'all still with me? We're still back in the first century. We're gonna get to Arlington here in just a second. So we're back in the first century. Look at what Paul says, verse 27. If a pagan invites you to eat, y'all wanna go, go. Go. If they invite you to come to their house to eat, go eat. He says, as a matter of fact, when they serve you a meal, eat it. All good. However, he says, if the host says, by the way, y'all, this meat that we're eating right now, I've just been to worship at the temple of Artemis. And I offered up this animal as a sacrifice in a ritual in my religion. And I brought the rest of it home to cook it and eat it. And now we're eating it. Paul says, if that happens, don't eat it. Don't participate. Use that as an opportunity to share why you would need it. But you could just Christian say, my conscience will not let me eat this particular meat. Thank you, though. That means you can go ahead and have the green beans, the casserole, the potato salad, the homemade rolls, all that. You just can't eat the meat. Does that make sense? So we got three situations here where can I go to the banquet hall of the temple? No. Can I go to the grocery store? Yes. Can I go to a neighbor's house? Yes. What if they serve meat that's been sacrificed an idol? Don't eat it. Okay? So that's what's happening in this context. All right, so now that I've got that figured out and I kind of understand what's going on, here's my next question. Why did this even matter? What was at stake? Why does Paul basically take three pages in the Scripture, inspired by the Spirit, to write about this particular issue. It should signal to me and you, this was a big deal in the first century. There are a lot of people dealing with this and trying to figure it out. 
So that's the first thing. But what was at stake? Well, I'd say a couple things. One's the integrity of the gospel. Paul is protective of the gospel, its power to transform people, to enable them to live in a society of non-believers. And so Paul wanted them to protect the truth of the gospel. And second, Paul was concerned about the witness of the church, both their witness to each other as well as the witness to the broader community. So he said, I want you to think about this before you just willy-nilly go and do whatever you want to do. But the heart of it, y'all, in the first century was this right here. Rights versus responsibility. Well, it's my right to do so-and-so. True. But how responsible are you in living out that right? So look at verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 10. I've got the right to do anything. Paul says, true, you're free. However, it's what it is you're choosing to do best and beneficial. Is it for the common good? So in other words, Paul is asking these first century Christians to balance their freedom with their responsibility. Now we're getting into Arlington. Now we're getting a little closer to home because you have freedom as a Christian. But how do you balance that freedom with responsibility you have as a Christian? You may have the right to do something, but is it best to do it? See, that's going to be the question. So with that said, let me offer you a summary. Here's what I would say is the summary of what we're facing when we look at a text like this and try to translate it 2,000 years later to our context. Here's the challenge presented in 1 Corinthians. I think it's the same one we face today. It's the same issue that we're dealing with today. And here it is. How do we live holy and sacred lives in the midst of unholy societies? Maybe more pointedly, how do we live the sacramental life, that's the holy life, and still participate in the broader society as authentic witnesses for Christ? So how do you do that? When you find yourself facing an an issue, a decision where you say, should I do this right here? Is this best? Is this right for me to do this? How do you make that decision? And how do you choose to live the sacramental life, the holy life as a Christian, when you live in an unholy society? How do you do it? I'm talking about just Monday through Friday. How do you do it? You face these decisions. Should I do this? Should I go there? Is this really best? Do I, do I feel the freedom to just engage in this particular activity? Should I participate in that? Should I support that? How do you decide that? And maintain your Christian integrity as you deal with much of what's around us that appears at least to be unholy. Well, let me offer you this morning some suggestions, if I may, okay? Here's the first thing I would say. We must be mature in our faith. We need to be mature. So I would just ask you to ask yourself, how mature am I as a Christian right now? What, what level of maturity would I say I've achieved as a follower of Jesus? Paul, in general, was disappointed in the Corinthians. Okay, how do I know that? Well, if you go back to page three of 1 Corinthians, the third chapter, first verse, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, I couldn't address you as people who live by the Spirit, 
but as people who are still worldly, worldly, mere infants in Christ, I gave you milk, not meat. Isn't that interesting? It's almost like a play on images. Paul said, I tried to give you the meat you need, but you didn't want it because you weren't ready for it. But now you're interested in some of the meat you don't need, and you're really interested in that. It's just a sign to me of how immature you are. Paul's disappointed. So I would say to me and you, the challenge is we need to grow up as Christians. That means that we have got to learn what we really believe. Okay, what, what are our real convictions? How convicted are you about what you believe? And how well informed are you as a Christian regarding what you ought to believe? You know, I'm always fascinated whenever Americans are interviewed and surveyed about their beliefs. It always fascinates me. I'm particularly interested when evangelical Christians in America are surveyed and asked what we believe. Now, the word evangelical is a little dicey nowadays because it's often used as a political term. I get that. But we received this report uh, from the Ligonier Ministries. Usually Lifeway con conducts it. And we've just received the latest one, the 2022 Ligonier Ministry State of Theology. It's basically a survey of evangelical Christians in America and what they believe theologically. Let me just give you some highlights from what we've just received. Now, let me make sure you understand this. The people that were surveyed had to answer yes to these four things. Do you believe the Bible's the highest authority for what you believe? Yes. It's very important for me to personally encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus as their Savior. Yes. Jesus' death on the cross is the only sacrifice that can remove the penalty of sin. Yes. Only those who trust in Jesus alone as their Savior receive God's gift of eternal salvation. Yes. Okay, so these are evangelical Christians, and they're given a true and false test survey. Let me give you the results that we just received this week. True or false, the first and greatest being created by God is Jesus. False. 73% of evangelical Christians in America agree with that statement. Jesus is the first and greatest created being by God. God accepts the worship of all religions, Judaism, Islam, etc. 58% of evangelical Christians said, we agree with that statement. Worshiping alone with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. 56% of evangelical Christians said, I agree with that statement. The Holy Spirit is a force, not a personal being. 55% said yes. Everyone sins just a little, but most people are good by nature. 55% of evangelical Christians said true. Even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. 53% disagreed with that. Every Christian should belong to a local church. 46% of evangelical Christians disagreed with that. Jesus was a great teacher, but he wasn't God. 44% of evangelical Christians agreed with that. I would just tell y'all, we got some work to do. Do what? Yeah, the question that David asked, how can you answer the first four questions affirmatively and then provide the answers to this the survey? That is a great question.
it lets me know we've got our work cut out for us because in order to live out your convictions, you got to have some in the first place. And so here's what we typically hear from evangelical Christians. What would Jesus do? Now, here's what I'd say about that. I'm fine with that question, okay? But here's what I would tell you. I'm only fine with that question if you ask another one first. What did Jesus do? I'm not necessarily as interested in what would Jesus do as I am what did Jesus do. And so if you, if you untether those two and you just say, what would Jesus do? Well, that opens up a subjective world for you just to decide whatever you want to do. And when you do that, all of a sudden you find Jesus looks a lot like you. I think he does. I think he looks a lot like me. You know, what would Jesus do? Pretty much what I want to do. So I tell people all the time, what would Jesus do? I say, well, before you ask that question, let me ask you this. What did he do? Let's start with that. And if you start deciding and understanding, rather, what Jesus did do, and you take seriously what Jesus did do, and you accept Jesus as, I mean, I'm talking about the real Jesus, not the one Americans have made up, you know, this soft and gentle and, and cool and, and provide you a parking space at the grocery store and all that kind of stuff. I'm talking about the real Jesus who came and proclaimed truth and freedom and died on the cross for your sin and understood the severity of this whole world situation, that Jesus. So let's figure out what he did, and then I'll let you ask the question, what would he do? Because if we don't have any convictions, well, then there's nothing to live out. So I would tell you, we start with being mature. And let me tell you a question for a mature Christian. Are y'all still with me? Because we're in Arlington now. See, we left Corinth. It gets really uncomfortable in Arlington. I'm at home in Corinth, man. Yeah, those Corinthians. Yeah, I know. I got Yeah, I can't believe. Now, all of a sudden, we're in Arlington. Wait a minute now. Um, so, you know... Um, what would you do? What do you do? Well, look at verse 31. Here's the question for the mature Christian. Can you do whatever you do for the glory of God? That's the question. Because that's what Paul says in verse 31. Paul says, look, I get it. He's had this long argument. I get it. you got all these questions. I understand it all. He says, so let me just say this to you. Whether you eat or drink it, whatever you choose to do, just make sure that you're able to do it for the glory of God. Now, so what I would suggest to you this morning, I'm not talking about moral stuff. I'm not saying that you grapple with this question. Should I commit adultery or not? Hmm, I don't know. What would Jesus do? No, we, we, we already know. I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. This is clear cut. I'm talking about the more morally neutral things where you nestle up against a, an unholy society and you're trying to decide, man, should I do that? Should I not do that? Is, that? is that the best course of action in this situation? Is this the right thing to do? I'm talking about those kinds of questions. Ask yourself this question. Can I do whatever it is I'm about to do for the glory of God? And if that gives you pause, then that just might be the Holy Spirit asking you to pause. Give God a chance to lead you. Because after all, our theological statement here at First Baptist Arlington is glorifying God by following the Jesus way. We believe that's why we're here. And so I would encourage you as your pastor, when you find yourself in those intersections, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. And I believe that will be a, a demonstration of your maturity. Second, we're called to be salt and light. You see, our world is full of people with no conscience, no moral compass, no sense of right or wrong. And God has put us right there in the middle of it. And we've got to be guided by the Spirit of God. 
And he wants to use us in our everyday lives to be salt and light, to point people to him, to encourage and bless the power of the gospel. You know, this last week, we were in the hospital. We had a uh, nurse practitioner come to visit with us. And uh, she came in our room and she talked with Cindy about what was going on with her and her whole life and uh, just what we needed to do, et cetera. And uh, she was from South Korea. And she continued asking questions. And finally, at some point, Cindy said, I just want to thank you. You've spent a lot of time with us this morning. I know you're busy. I feel bad that you've spent so much time here. This nurse practitioner said, you don't have to apologize. I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. She said, so every morning when I get up, I pray. And I ask the Holy Spirit to guide me in every conversation I have today. And when I sense the Spirit of God guiding me in a conversation, I stay in it until I sense his leadership out of it. She, she said, so I have felt the leadership of the Spirit in this room, and I've stayed until I had this conversation. She said, you know, Christians don't just go to work. That's not what we do. We show up on assignment. She said, I'm not here working. You see, I'm here to represent Jesus. Seriously. I almost did this. Would you do that again and let me just video this for, for my church and for me just to remind me that I don't just show up in the everyday of my life. I'm actually on assignment. And so guess what she did in our room? I, she had just had an accident and, and, uh, and I said, uh, were you injured? Yes. I said, well, can I pray for you? She said, of course. I prayed over her. She looked at me and said, what we really need to do is pray for her. She walked right around me and laid hands on Cindy and prayed over Cindy. When she left, Cindy and I both just sat there and said, did that, just, did that just happen in our room in Arlington, Texas? Yes, a Holy Spirit-filled Christian from South Korea showed up in our room and brought salt and light. Praise God. That's who we are. And so we have got to experience somehow the wisdom and the leadership of the Spirit so that we then can be salt and light in our community in the everyday so let me offer you one other suggestion, and that is this. We must be thoughtful, authentic, spirit-led, I would say creative, as we engage a non-Christian society as Christians. Let, let me say that again. I just think we need to be thoughtful, authentic, spirit-filled, creative, as we engage a non-Christian society. Would y'all agree that in America today, we live in a non-Christian society. Would you not agree with me in that? And I'm not saying that pejoratively either. Just being honest. It's the world I live in. Here's what bothers me. Most non-believers in America know what we're against. They know what we don't like. Here's my question. How can we somehow more creatively, more authentically communicate to our culture what we actually believe in? What? what we stand for, what we're in favor of, instead of just what we're opposed to. And so that's one of the ways to me that we need to engage this culture creatively so this culture can know this is what we're in favor of. Sometimes they look at us and they think, oh man, those poor Christians, they don't do anything. They don't have any fun. They can't participate in anything. I'm gonna tell y'all right now, I have fun. I'm on an adventure. I love my life and, and I'm living a wholesome, holy life. 
and it's enjoyable. I look forward to living every day. I wake up every morning, and I think to myself, this may be the best day of my life. The last thing I'm going to do is be in a bad mood today because why would I want to be in a bad mood when this just might be the best day of my life? Drives my wife crazy, but that is how I wake up every day. I'm not going to miss it. This may be it. And you know what? It's fun. It's enjoyable. I'm connected. I want you to have that. And I'm doing it in the name of Jesus. I'm trying to do it for the glory of God. I want my church, I mean, my people in Arlington know I'm not just opposed to stuff. I'm in favor of a whole lot of stuff. We got to be creative. And y'all, the gospel, my goodness, the gospel is at work. Even in the midst of challenging cultural societies and contexts. You know, I wanted to tell y'all, our church, you know, we've just given something like $135,000 to the Baptist World Alliance to help for relief in the Ukraine. Y'all remember that? We gave it through the Baptist World Alliance, our, our World Baptist family. Some of that money was used to just help some refugees stay alive. There was one point where we were helping 1,000 people a day with that money. Some of the money has been used to help the Ukrainian Baptist churches in the midst of this war. Elijah Brown, who is the general secretary of the Baptist World Alliance, he texted me this week. He said, Dennis, I want, to know what's, I want you to know what's going on and tell your church. He said, I'm at the meeting with the European Baptists in Latvia and Igor Bandura is here. I met him, I met him in Birmingham in July. He's the vice president of the Ukrainian Baptist Union he gave a report this week to European Baptists. He said, I want y'all to know we have 400 Baptist churches right now that are in occupied territory uh, by the Russians. 200 of them, their pastors have had to run for their lives. He said, however, God's still at work. In the last three months, there have been, in those churches, there have been 2,300 people come to Christ and be baptized. Amen. And... And those churches have ordained 40 new pastors in the midst of this challenging war in the context that they're in. I, I, I received that from Elijah, and I wrote him back, and I said, praise God, because what it says to me is that our fellow Baptists there, they're learning how to share, to love, to care for one another, care for people, and proclaim the good news of Jesus. And guess what? 2,300 Ukrainians in the last three months have decided they wanted the hope and the change of the gospel in their own lives. That's because regardless of the cultural context, the gospel of Jesus is powerful and transformative, and it brings hope into people's lives. And so as you and I are living it out here, we're living that same gospel. It's my hope, it's my prayer that God will use us to communicate it effectively so that the people in our community will come to know the beauty and the richness of this same gospel. May it be so. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we're grateful today for this gospel. It's power, it's um, transformative impact in our lives. And the fact that it's really good news. And in spite of all that's around us sometimes, it continues to be really good news. And so I pray, Lord, that you give us wisdom as, as your people to, to live out this gospel. Lord, in some ways, this conversation Paul had, had seemed so remote from us. The meat offered to idols, 
And yet at the same time, the whole struggle with freedom and responsibility and somehow the challenge of living as holy people in the midst of an unholy society, that makes perfect sense to us. And so help us as we read the text to to hear the heart of the people, to hear the heart of the Apostle Paul and others who you use to write it, but to also hear your heart so that you might give us that same heart for the people of our day. So Lord, help us in our understanding of the Scripture and its application in our lives to do it in a way that honors you and is consistent with your word and will bear fruit in your kingdom. That's our prayer today in Jesus' name. Amen.